Well, turn your Bibles once again to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Our theme this morning, congregation, is an exhortation to persevere. An exhortation to persevere. The Bible, in its many exhortations, uh, strikes a delicate balance between warning and encouragement. The Bible, in its many exhortations, strikes a delicate balance between warning and encouragement. If you're a parent, you understand this. The Bible places us as God, as our Father, and we as His children. And as His children, He uses both warnings and encouragements to cause us to endure, cause us to persevere, and cause us to press on in the Christian life. Warnings come at us as a loving threat. Don't go down that road. Don't follow Lady Folly, for example. The way of Lady Folly is misery and death and destruction. Don't go down that way. That's warning. The Bible also speaks to us by way of encouragement, does it not? In a sense that it woos us to Christ. Our God woos us. He persuades us. He he seeks to uh, pull out our hearts, you could say, to see the loveliness and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both warning and encouragement cause us to endure. Uh, Dr. Robert Paul Martin had this to say. Hear these words. Speaking of verses 9 to 12 in Hebrews 6, he says, Here is not merely a note of stern warning, which, if it stands alone, quenches the smoking flax and causes the tenderhearted to despair. So there's just warning. You and I are toast. Right? Neither is there here merely the display of immutable promises of God, which, if they stand alone, the slothful are prone to presume upon and make into a license for continued sin. Rather, here is that balanced word of God, which encourages the wakened and earnest believer while warning the slothful and presumptuous. Here, he says, is that balanced word of God which sets forth both fear and hope as motives for perseverance. A proper walking before the Lord all our days is tied to our living on the razor's edge. This is so good. Where godly fear and a lively hope are in blessed harmony. And where neither erodes the other. Amen. We need warning and we need encouragement. We got warning last week. Don't fall away. This week we get encouragement to press on. Would you stand? As we read Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have for shown, you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patient, patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the living God. Indeed. Have a seat. So our theme is perseverance today. Endurance to press on. And I am going to end with the help of Faith Cook. Do you know that name? Some of you do. Ian Clary's back there thinking, yes, I do. Faith Cook is an amazing biographer, in my opinion. And we are going to end on that last word. You see that there in verse 12, imitators? That's where we're going to land at the end. And we are going to look at the value of Christian biography. So that's where we're going. But we're not there yet. We have four verses to cover before then. Verse 9, an exhortation to persevere. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things Things that belong to salvation. Now, remember the context in which this sits. He says, though we speak in this way. Well, what's this way? Well, the way he just spoke in verses 4 and 6. A very troubling way, right? A very hard way. He had a very difficult way or a word to speak to us. Don't fall away. It's possible to receive the reign of the gospel and not be truly regenerated, adopted, and justified. And so he says, though we had to speak in this difficult way, though I had to warn you, yet in your case, beloved, so there's a distinction there, in your case, beloved, you genuine Christians, we feel sure of better things. What are those better things? Things that belong to salvation. Which is why we took the view that what the author describes in verses 4 and 6 is not genuine salvation. Because he draws a distinction here. What he described above was, was a professing Christian, not having justification though. And so he says here, though we speak in this way, this, this word of warning, beloved, in your case, we feel sure of better things. There's a difference he's saying. In your case, there's better things to come. Things that are possessed, really. Things that belong to salvation. They're consumed with salvation. That's what this apostle is saying here. And then he says, note this word there in verse 9. Yet in your case, beloved. This term is used by every New Testament author which should tell us something about how the early church spoke, felt, and yes, we can say that word felt in a Reformed context, how we felt or feel or spoke um, about one another or to one another in the early church. He calls them his beloved. 
It's a term of, as one author puts it, complete affection. One author says it stresses the heart-engaging nature of Christian fellowship. So here's a term that, that is really trying to get at the, the fabric, uh, the, the love that ties us together, that we are one another's beloved. A term of complete affection. And I find it interesting that this is the only place where the author of Hebrews uses this term. And it's quite appropriate. He just warned them with a severe warning. And so you might get the sense, wow, does he love us? If he's speaking with such stern words and and hard-hitting truth about apostasy, does this writer love us? And so the author says in verse 9, though we had to speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. There's a lesson I think we need to learn here. Warning someone is not the absence of love. In our culture, and also in our Christian subculture, Affirmation is the love language, right? Here, he says, you know, I love you with all of my heart, but you need to be warned. You do not need to be affirmed. You need to be warned. Immaturity is on the rise, and some of you perhaps might fall in full-scale apostasy someday. Beloved, if I can use that term, beloved, this is a lesson we need to learn in the church today. A word of rebuke or a word of admonition or a word of reproof is, it can be a word of love. And it ought to be such in our context. Now, verse 10, moving along. For God... So why does he feel better of why does he feel sure of better things? Because or for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So I'm sure of better things, things that belong to salvation because God is not unjust. He, he's, he's not going to overlook two things. Did you see him? Your work and your love. Your work is not going to be overlooked by God and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That's the second. God is not going to overlook. Let's talk about this phrase, your work. He's not going to overlook your work, it is in the singular, but I do not believe it is describing one single act. As one commentator said, it is describing a substantial, continuing pattern of fruitfulness. So two things can be true at the same time in this church. They can be very fruitful. 
and also immature. So, again, say what you want about this early Christian congregation. Uh, They were immature. They might have been sliding down to apostasy. But one thing is for sure, they were workers. They were doers. They knew James 2. Show me your faith. (laughs) I'll show you my faith by my works. So they were doers. Secondly, here's what I want to stay on for just a moment. God is not also going to overlook the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, their love for God was shown in serving other Christians. That's how I read that. Is that how you read it? He's not going to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. How was that love shown? In serving the saints. So they did not believe what many do today, that you can love the Lord and not the church. They did not believe that. Their love for God was shown displayed, manifested in serving and loving the brethren. And the Bible is chock full of this truth. The only visible mark of true conversion is the presence of sanctification. Do you know that? The only visible true mark of genuine conversion is the presence of sanctification. 1 John 3, let's turn there. As it picks up this theme. First uh, John three. So we're talking about love for God and displayed in serving the saints. First John three ten. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Well, this ought to be interesting. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you see the echo of Hebrews there? Say what you want. We had a saying, by the way, growing up in athletic competition. I don't know if they still use it today. Uh, you can talk the talk, but you can't, but you need to walk the walk, right? Well, in a sense, that's true of the Christian faith. You can say what you want, but you need to walk the walk. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Say what you want about being a child of God. If you do not love your brother, you have no warrant of being a Christian. Verse 11. 
excuse me, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How, how do we know that? Because we love the brothers. The presence of sanctification, namely in serving the saints and loving the brethren, is the mark of true conversion. Whoever does not love, verse 14, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love. That he lay down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love for God is shown in serving the saints and loving the brothers. John Owen, a lively faith will be a working faith. A lively faith will be a working faith. And I'm proud to be in a church, and I speak for probably all the elders, and I don't say this to, uh, what's the phrase, earn your favor. I don't, that's, why I'm not, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm proud to be at a church that has genuine affection for one another. I know that because people tell me that. When people come to this church and they stick around, they say, you know why I stuck around at this church? It wasn't your preaching. Great. We are at this church because what we saw at this church was serving and loving one another. Amen. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 6. So as you still do, so keep doing it. The Hebrews still do it. You you keep doing it too. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So God wasn't going to overlook their work. and He wasn't going to overlook their love for God that was shown in loving the saints. And there are now two more desires in verse 11 that this author has for this church. Number one, to show the same earnestness. So this group was earnest. They had diligence. One author writes, assiduousness. It's a big term. Persistence. There was an earnest pressing on. An earnest endurance in the Christian life. Same term used in chapter 4, verse 11, about striving to enter that rest. So this church, again, say what you want about it, and it has many problems. They loved one another, they loved God, and they were earnest in their faith. They pressed on well. And we desire, he says, that you would be this way again and again. And, he says, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Let's break this down for just word by word here. Hope. What is hope? Hope is a confident expectation that you will receive what has been promised. 
a confident expectation that you will receive what has been promised. Now he's going to use Abraham in verse 13 as the man of hope. That he, and in hope, he believed against hope. And so he pressed on well. So hope is not a wishful thinking, or oh, I hope this is going to happen. No, it's a confident expectation that what God has promised will come to pass. Next, he says, I want you to have a, for assur- a full assurance of hope. Not a perfect assurance. Right? As if somehow you could be shielded from all doubts and fears. That's not what he says. A full assurance, a substantial assurance. One of the mistakes we make when we think about assurance is seeing assurance as a kind of permanent inner peace. And if we don't have that permanent inner peace, we conclude, well, I must not have assurance. I think that is a massive mistake. As long as you and I have indwelling sin, we will be assaulted by doubts and fears in this life. Biblical assurance is not a permanent inner peace insulated from doubt. Biblical assurance is a faith-fueled conviction that Christ will sustain you. He will hold you fast in the midst of doubt and fears, not in the absence of them. That's assurance. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says so. Jude verse 20. Go to Jude. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I wonder if I have assurance. I don't feel assurance. I don't have a permanent inner peace. Can I have assurance if I I doubt and I waver? Yes, you can. Jude 20. But you, beloved, there it is again, by the way. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who have a permanent inner peace. Have mercy on those who doubt. Can you have assurance this morning? Yes, you can. In the midst of doubt, not in the absence of them. Christ will hold you fast. He will sustain you. Hear this from John Calvin. Surely, he says, that while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt. Or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Isn't that good? You can have a full assurance as you wrestle with the Lord in the midst of your doubt and fears. Because the bottom of assurance is not your faith or your hope. The bottom of assurance 
is the Father receiving the Son in full delight and pleasure, pleasure as He ascended post-resurrection. If you could break that Trinitarian covenant or that union together, then you wouldn't have assurance. But because that bond is sure, that is the bottom of your assurance. Not because of your faith or your hope, but because of God committing himself to God. How long does this assurance last? Hebrews chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. (laughs) Amen. We're not going to be lost all the way. As long as the way is narrow and as long as the way is hard, Christ will sustain you. He will hold you all the way until the end. In the words of John Bunyan, all the way to the celestial city as you walk through the many valleys of the shadow of death and meet Apollyon again and again and again. John Owen, there is no time nor season wherein we may be discharged from this duty. No condition to be attained in this life wherein this diligence will not be necessary for us. We must therefore attend unto it until we are absolutely discharged of this whole warfare. That's what this life is. Warfare. And Christ will see to it all the way until the end. Our God is so good. He warned you last week. Now I hope he's providing encouragement for you today. Uh, Verse 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have have the full assurance of hope until the end so that, so here's the grand purpose, so that you may not be sluggish. You may not be lazy. You may not have spiritual paralysis. You may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Mimetai is the word for imitators, where we get the word mimic. So instead, the grand purpose of exhortation, of encouragement, is that you would not be sluggish and spiritually lazy, but that you would be earnest and that you would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Promises. We are not to be jealous of one another, nor envious of one another, nor combative or aggressive. We are to be imitators of the beloved. Here's where I rely on Faith Cook, because I'm going to press upon you that you should read Christian biographies based on this verse. You can imitate one another, and there are many saints in this room you ought to imitate. Christian giants, so to speak. They'll remain nameless. On my shelf are men and women who have inspired me over the years to press on in the Christian life. George Whitfield's back there. Charles Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, um, Ann Dutton. Um, well, 
I'm not going to list them all. Let me, um, let me use Faith Cook to inspire you to imitate uh, those of faith now and those of the, uh, the past. Number one, here's, here's the value of Christian biography. Number one, theology in action. And if you know Christian biography, you know this to be true. Christian biography, imitating those of the past, gives you a theology in action. God is the God of the unexpected. And it comes as a strong encouragement to discover that he sometimes takes up and uses a man or a woman whom society might regard as inadequate. Do you feel inadequate today? Take heart. Christian Watt, a young Scottish girl, 1833-1923. She knew horrible adversity, was confined to a mental hospital in Aberdeen from the age of 44 all the way until her death at 90. Nevertheless, Christian Watt gave herself to a constant service of testimony and spiritual consolation, not only to other patients in the mental hospital, but to the shell-shocked victims of the First World War. God is the God of unexpected things. William Carey, 1761-1834, who preached for seven long years in India before he saw his first convert. Seven long years before his first convert. He believed unshakably in the final triumph of the kingdom of God, and such faith was eventually richly rewarded. In our own day of little apparent progress, do you get the sense of that? There's no gospel progress today. All are dull of hearing. All aren't coming to Christ. Records like these can give us the, the determination to hold fast to the promises of God. You could read about Selina Huntis of Huntington, 1707-1791, and her selfless support for gospel ministry. She established and financed a college to train young preachers when she was over 60 years of age. So retirement at 60, not for Selina. She went on to open up numerous chapels up and down the land, laboring on until her last week of her life. At her death, now 83, she could only whisper, quote, My work is done. I shall go to my father this night. And so she did. Read the account of Robert Germain Thomas, 1839-1866, and his steadfast aim to take the scriptures into North Korea in the year of his death. He was bombarded with hailstones from hostile Koreans when he disembarked and attempted to cross the beach. Undaunted, he struggled on all the time offering his Bibles to his murderers. Some collected up the Bibles. Yeah, you got to hear this. Some collected up the Bibles left strewn on the beach after Thomas was dead and later papered the walls of their houses with them. Here they were able to read the scriptures in secret and when missionaries eventually gained admittance into North Korea, they discovered to their amazement a small group of believers converted through the pages of the martyred missionaries' Bibles. Be imitators. Lavina Bartlett, 
1806-1875. She was described as Spurgeon's best deacon. She inspires us to learn as, uh, how a, a middle-aged widow in poor health gave all her strength to serving the needy women and girls of London. Her weekly Bible class climbed in numbers from three when she started to anything between seven and 800 at her death. Examples of such Christian convictions translated into devoted service tucked in among the pages of some biography are legion, beloved. They are legion and are well worth seeking out. Christian biography teaches you theology in action. Imitate the brothers and sisters of the faith. Lastly, Christian biography teaches you, yes, you know where I'm going, how to suffer rightly. positive lesson in which we can glean from our reading of Christian biography is how to suffer well. Catherine Boston, the wife of the Scottish preacher Thomas Boston, 1676-1732. And Aaron, I'm just going to give you a list of the biographies today and you put it on the email, all right? Catherine Boston lost six of her ten infants in death. Six of her ten infants and death. Her sufferings brought about a mental collapse. Her sufferings brought about a mental collapse. I wonder what we would say to to a woman like that. What's wrong with you? Her sufferings brought about a mental collapse, and for many years she was as the living among the dead. Her husband quoted that phrase. Yet whenever her condition eased, She reaffirmed her strong faith in God. After eight years of illness, she could still declare on one of those few days of mental clarity, quote, I did take God to be my God. And with my whole heart gave up myself, soul and body to be the Lord's forever. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit promises. I'm not done. Contrary to our natural fears and apprehensions, trials and sufferings have often proved the single greatest incentive to growth and grace. Can you not testify to that, beloved? Aren't they? Perhaps it is at this point that Christian biography can be of the greatest help. Samuel Rutherford, 1600 to 1661, writing from house arrest in Aberdeen. He adds these words. It is your part to believe and suffer and hope and wait on whether God will come to his children with a rod or a crown. We usually like the crown. If he comes himself, well, it is well, Rutherford says. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome, Jesus. Whatsoever you may come. Horatius Bonner, 1808-1889, the Scottish hymn writer buried five of his 11 children in their infancy. Yet he regarded suffering as a great, as a God-sent privilege, the family badge of the Christian. One day, he assures us, we will thank God most of all for being allowed to suffer. (laughs) For then we grew most in grace and in our love for Christ. And who can forget the steadfast courage of young Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen of England, as she faced the cruel scaffold at 16 
years of age. She wrote to her younger sister the night before she was executed, quote, I am assured that I shall, losing of a mortal life, win an immortal life. The which I pray God grant you and send you of his grace to live in fear and to die in the true Christian faith from the which I exhort you that you never swerve, neither for hope of life nor for fear of death. Perhaps, and I'll close with this, perhaps the greatest blessing of all that comes from reading Christian biography, of imitating one another and those of the past, that one should encourage us to start if we have not done so already, is the assurance that our God is an unchanging God. All that he has done in the past, he can repeat in our day. Did you know that? All that he has done in the past, he can repeat in our day. His power is unlimited. His grace is plentiful. He is still able to take up men and women who earnestly seek him and use them effectively in whatever sphere he may choose. As we read, we enter into a great heritage of 2,000 years of devotion and service to God of heaven. And who can tell what he might yet do for us in this day? Let's pray. Our God, we want to imitate those who have gone before us. Perhaps it's an orphanage and we can take care of those. Perhaps it's some other work here or abroad. But let us be earnest. Let us not be sluggish. Let us have full assurance of hope all the way into the end. And while we walk this life, let us never, never forget one another in serving one another with our utmost love for you have loved us first, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so we come to this table, Lord, this table of fellowship with you, yes, but with one another. It's a table where we eat and drink of our one bond in Christ. We eat it together and we drink it together, not as a ritual simply, but because that is what we are. We are together. We are one body. And so God, give us a great hope as we persevere in this life by great encouragement. In your name we pray. Amen.